Welcome today. We have a couple change for the dollar, change for a dollar, envelopes to give out today to Sandra and Paul Fury. Is that right, Fury? Yeah. There you go. That is our change for a dollar ministry. We collect dollars in a bucket at the back. If you have one, toss it in there. Then we collect those dollars together, hand them to you to use to bless in an unexpected way. Those around you. It's a cool deal. So uh, we're glad you're with us today. Today we're diving into a brand new series for this Advent season. Uh, The series is entitled, He Will Be Called. Uh, If you have your Bible, you can open it up today to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 8 and 9 is where we will be, and we'll be skipping around those two chapters a little bit today. All right. How many of you at some point in your lives have named another human? That's probably a baby. That's a a weird way to say that, but that's a lot of responsibility, isn't it? Yeah. The whole naming process. What you name your baby when your baby's born is difficult. I've done it twice, but there's all these rules kind of no one ever talks to you about. Um, For example, if you or your spouse have ever dated anyone with a certain name, that name is off limits from now until the end of the world. Uh, if you ever knew somebody that was, you know, slightly odd, that name is out. You can't, you can't name a baby the same name as your pets or as any pets you've ever known. Um, so it's hard, and it's, and it's rather important, especially when you realize names have meaning. Um, you have to think about kind of the, through the first name and the middle name and the last name carefully, or else you get, you know, Eileen Wright or, you know, something like that, something strange. But if you don't, things can go bad. With Cana, we have a daughter named Cana, we decided on her first name. Uh, we were considering using Belle as her middle name. Well, at some point, we realized, Cana Bell, who said quickly, sounds a lot like cannibal. So, someone who eats people. So, not an ideal name, so you can see how this is a problem. So anyway, in this series, we're going to look at four of the names of Jesus. These names, though, we find in an Old Testament prophecy that was given about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. In a season, in a time when there was a lot of turmoil and a lot of fear. So let's read Isaiah 8, uh, 21 and 22. It gives us some background into the context surrounding this prophetic word about the future birth of the, and the names of Jesus. Okay, So Isaiah eight twenty one says, Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will, will curse their king and their god. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. So you see what's happening here at the end of chapter 8. We see the Israelites, and they're, they're crushed under famine, and they're crushed under all sorts of problems. And it says earlier in chapter 8 uh, that at this point they're looking to mediums and spiritualists and intellectuals. They're, they're trying to find an answer to their problems. And it says that the more they looked at the earth, the more distress and the more fearful gloom and the more darkness they find. And then chapter 9, verse 1 starts. I love it. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future... 
He will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Nevertheless, there is a light to dawn. But it's, it's not a light that can be lit ourselves. It can't be ignited by us. This passage says the people who walked in darkness have seen a light. They haven't, they haven't generated it. They haven't ignited it. They haven't kindled it. They've seen it. They've discovered it. It's from beyond us. It's God intervening into our situation to bring light. Yes, things are dark, and we keep looking to the earth. We keep looking, and it seems like all is darkness. Nevertheless, there's a light. Okay, so what does this passage have to do with Christmas? All right, so here's the one millionth person telling you the true meaning of Christmas, all right? Let's do it again. Let's look at the scripture. Let's look at the Bible and see what the scripture says here. Christmas means the world is a dark place. Christmas is a message of unparalleled hope. And yet, Christmas is also telling you something about the world and about your own heart and about your own mind that is sobering. Uh, Jesus is a light because the world is such a dark place. This says they look to the earth and they see nothing but distress and darkness and fearful gloom. The world has problems. And it, and it knows its problems, and it analyzes them incessantly, and it understands them extremely well, but it cannot find the solution to them. That's why the world is a dark place. The world is looking for someone to come along and say, Here's the, here, this is the answer. You know, and, and then our philosophical and our psychological and our sociological problems will be solved through enlightenment. You know, we need a leader, that's what we need. We, we need somebody who can rally the forces and set the vision. We need leadership, or we need, we need smarter people. We need to go into ourselves. We need to look to the earth. It's this idea that politicians and economists and philosophers are going to fix it. We've been looking at them for five or six millennia now, and it's not getting better. After a while, you become aware you're surrounded by darkness, and the more you look, the more you realize that the world doesn't have the answer to its problems. There's a guy by the name of Bertrand Russell. He was this atheist author. Uh, he died in the 70s, but he wrote an essay book thing called uh, Why I Am Not a Christian. And you might say, why would you read something like that? Well, it's actually very enlightening. Here's why. Bertrand Russell was absolutely amazing at explaining the darkness of human life. He refused to let you get out from under it. This is a quote by him. This is what he says. If there is no God, then consider the logic of your position. And do not try to squirm out of it by singing Christmas carols. If there is no God, then we're an accident. We're chance creatures. We're the result of the accidental collision of molecules. Unfortunately, we have evolved into creatures with self-consciousness. We're aware of ourselves. And because we're aware of ourselves, we feel we're significant. Somehow more noble than rocks and slime. But there's no basis for such a feeling. What Russell says is, if there is no God, then you can't trust those feelings inside you that say that there's a meaning to, the, to your life. You have to build your life on a foundation of despair. You have to realize not only you, but all of mankind eventually will die. And if there's no God, then it all was pointless. Your life and everybody you know lived a pointless existence. 
There's no meaning to it all. If there's no God, then sadly we have evolved and developed a consciousness that demands meaning and value in a universe that offers neither. So the world's answer is, well, there's no meaning to life, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grab everything I can. You know, Go ahead, eat, drink, be merry, enjoy yourself. Get as much pleasure as you can. But as you start to feel the joy, you should try to forget the fact that it's all an illusion. The joy is an illusion. Love is an illusion. Beauty is an illusion. That may work for a while, but it'll keep creeping back into your consciousness. So just push it out. Deny the reality of your situation. And try to live like it isn't all pointless. One writer said, Let nature be irrational and merciless and impersonal. I will not. I will have mercy. I will act personally. But whatever curious chance the universe has produced me, now that I am here, I'm going to live according to human values. I knew the universe will win, but I will go down fighting amidst all this wastefulness. I will make sacrifices. I will be humane. Let the universe be damned. That sounds very noble, doesn't it? The problem is it doesn't work. Because where did you get this notion of being humane and compassionate? Where did it come from? If there's no God, there's no meaning, right? If you really are just the result of an accidental collision of molecules, then these notions of compassion and humaneness are just the accidental collision of atoms inside your skull. It isn't real. The message of Christmas is the world is a dark place. And the more you look to the world for the solutions, and the more you think about it, the darker it gets. And unless God has sent his Son into the world, unless God has revealed himself through the Son who he sent into the world, there's no light for the world. There's no light any other place because he brings meaning to our lives. He is our only hope. That's the message of Christmas. So you know, what, you know what this means? It means, first of all, if you do not know God personally, if you don't know that God really sent his son into the world to live and to die on the earth for each of us, if you don't know that, then, then you can't take Christmas and use it the way we do. And that, that is, we make chirpy little happy statements about how if we just hold hands, everything will be all right. If we just get together in a circle and love each other, everything's going to be okay. You can't do that. Here's why. Every other kind of non-Christian philosophy tries to console you like this. They say, buck up. Things aren't that bad. In every cloud, there's a silver lining. Christianity is far more realistic than any worldly philosophers. Christianity said, things are dark. Nevertheless, a light has dawned. Therefore, we have hope. Why? Because Jesus was born as a baby and he died for us and he rose triumphant over the grave and now he is seated at the right hand of God the Father and he's ruling all things until he puts everything under his feet one day and someday we're going to rule and reign with him. That's true, then there is an ultimate reality that brings meaning to our lives. Then no matter what happens to us, our real riches are safe. We can rest in him. We have a hope. And and here's the thing. God doesn't simply bring light into a dark world. He brings it in the most unexpected and unlikely of ways. So this makes the message of Christmas even more hopeful. It says here in the first couple verses of chapter 9, it says, In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. 
Here's what he's saying. Galilee was despised, especially Nazareth, the place Jesus grew up and came from. There was a common saying. Uh, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Nazareth was a uh, podunk backwater town in the, in the country that was near the land of the Gentiles and was really despised by everyone. So it wasn't a vacation destination, okay? It, it was kind of located between these two big cities, so most people just passed through it on their way to where they were going. So have you ever been on one of those long road trips and you pull into one of those towns to get gas, a Slurpee, and a corn dog, you know, use the bathroom, clean the bugs off your windshield, and get out of there as fast as you can, praising God that that's not where you're from? Right? That's Nazareth, right? Corn dogs, gas station. That's what you have. Nothing good can happen there. So maybe there are some of you here that are embarrassed to live in a small town. Maybe there are young folks here that think, I can't wait to move somewhere where things are happening because we, we know how things work, right? Great things don't happen in little towns. Great things uh, don't happen. Great thoughts aren't thought in small towns. Great events don't occur. Great people don't live there. You know, if you want great things to happen, New York, L.A., Paris, London, that, that's the great places, right? Can I tell you, that's, that's how the world thinks. That's not true. Right, this, is, this is a little sidebar, but if you are a young person in here today, can I encourage you? Uh, we need just as many smart, passionate people ministering in Northeast Ohio as anywhere else. Right? Consider putting down roots here when it's time to do that. I love Ohio and Columbiana, and there's a place here for you. There's a place for you to use your gifts to the fullest. The world thinks that they know how things have to happen. That isn't true. Great thoughts can happen in small towns. Great things can happen in small towns. End of rant. But God makes sure his son comes as a little baby born to poor parents, born to an unwed mother in a feed trough raised in a crappy small town. And the only people invited to his first birthday party are shepherds. Who are shepherds? I mean, the most despised of all jobs in Israel. So despised that a testimony of a shepherd was not admissible evidence in court because shepherds were considered that unreliable. Nobody respected the shepherds. They are the ones who come to his party. Why does God do this? As Paul says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. That's the message of Christmas. Not only that God brings light into darkness, but God does it in the most unlikely and unexpected ways. Why, why would he do that? So at every Christmas time, you would know Christmas is, above everything else, a message of hope. So let's look at our unexpected hope. Let's read Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, I believe. A verse that's often used in the Christmas season. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Here's the name of our series. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and he will be called the Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign in David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So here we see the prophetic title given to Jesus 700 years before his birth, that he would be called the Wonderful Counselor, 
wonderful counselor. These two English words come from two Hebrew words. Pele Yoez. Pele means a great soccer player. (laughs) Not really. That was a bad joke. Don't laugh at that. Anyway, Pele... That's dumb. Pele means beyond understanding. It, It means too wonderful for words. So when Isaiah was going to describe the Savior of the world, Jesus, he didn't have the words to describe him. He used a word that said that there's no words great enough to tell you just how awesome he is. He's too wonderful for words. Yoez is the word translated as counselor. It means to advise or to consult or to guide. So one day a son will be born, a child will be given to us. His name will be Pele Yoez. He will be the wonderful counselor. He is God in the flesh. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and he knows you and cares for you and understands exactly what you're going through. Therefore, he can be your wonderful counselor. I love the way it's described in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. You don't have to go there, but it's speaking of Jesus, our high priest. Scripture says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to do or to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Our high priest, our savior, our wonderful counselor Jesus, he's been through what we have gone through or are going through. He's been tempted in every way that we're tempted, yet he was without sin. He understands pain. He understands hurt. He has experienced life just as we have. That's why verse 16 says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So, some of you right now, maybe you are in a time of need. Uh, When Jesus came, he came for those who were in need. Jesus says in Luke 5, 31, he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So the question is, where are you sick? Where where do you hurt? Because truthfully, we're all sick at one point or another, right? We all battle with weaknesses and vulnerabilities and strongholds and dysfunctions. We live in a dark world, right? So where are you sick? And we live in such a competitive culture that we have a hard time admitting that we even struggle. <clears throat> How are you doing? Well, I can't look weak, so fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. We're fine. Great. Everything's great. Fine. Right? <clears throat> you? How are you doing? Okay, stop. Where are you sick? <clears throat> You know, the holidays, they have kind of a way of magnifying things. Uh, they make the good things look better, but they also make the bad things look worse, I think. The holidays often magnify our sicknesses. So where are you sick? It could be like so many people today, you're depressed. <clears throat> you wake up every day wondering how you're going to get through the day. You have no hope that tomorrow's going to be any better. You are in that darkness that Isaiah talked about. You're simply depressed. Heaviness, this weight, this sense of hopelessness. Others of you, maybe you live in fear. You're always worrying. You're wondering, what's going to happen? Nothing's good enough and things can get worse. And we just live with this anxiety and fear. Maybe you're stressed. You're looking at your to-do list and thinking, how can this ever get done? How can I shop for everybody? I've got family coming over. The house has to be perfect. And Meals need to be just so, and you're just full of anxiety, you're sick. Some of you, maybe it's a financial stress, right? 
like, oh my gosh, we're, we're hurting already and we've got to pay for Christmas presents. Christmas is coming up, how are we ever going to do it? That's why you're sick. Some of you are lonely, maybe. You, have a, you see happy families in the, on the holidays and you look it on and you go, why can't I have that? Why do I go to bed alone? Why do I eat alone? I hate this. So maybe some of you, it's more of a family sickness. You've got problems in your family. You just don't want to address them. Instead, you're, instead of being excited about being with family during the holidays, you dread it. You don't want to be there. Maybe somebody's hurt you and you're angry about it. Where are you sick? We're all sick at different points in our life. So acknowledge yours. Answer the question, where are you sick? And remember the good news. Maybe even though all you see right now is darkness, There can be a nevertheless in your story. There is a light that breaks through even the darkest times. Jesus, our our wonderful counselor. So let's look for a few moments at some of the biblical principles that deal with just how we find healing with this wonderful counselor. Okay? Number one. Like if any counselor, you have to be brutally honest with yourself and him. And realize that you're sick. Jesus says... The only ones who receive the kingdom of heaven are the poor in spirit. You can't come to him with your hands full of claim checks. You have to come and say, I have nothing in my hands. Receive me completely. He lets people like that in. In the story of the, <clears throat> the woman at the well, Jesus at one point asked the woman to go get her husband. And what does the woman say? She says, I don't have a husband. She could have chosen to lie to Jesus. Right? She could have just tried to hide her shame, her darkness. But she doesn't. She's honest with him. And because she's honest with him, Jesus continues and says, All right, you're right. I'm the living water. I'm the one. Uh, I'm, I'm what you've been searching for for your entire life. And Jesus was able to reveal who he is and who he, who, who he should be in her life because she was honest with him. In Psalm 55, verse 22, we're told to cast our cares on the Lord. And he will sustain us. He will never let the righteous fall. So the second thing is we must learn to to listen to the counselor's voice. To listen to Jesus. Listen to God's uh, advice to his disciples in Mark chapter 9. You don't have to turn there now. You can read this whole story sometime. But uh, Jesus took three of his closest disciples up on the top of a mountain. And God did this crazy miracle. And God transfigured Jesus. And he was all glowing and shining on white up there on the mountain. And then Moses and Elijah appeared on the mountain. And you can imagine these three disciples, they were, they were like terrified. So they just start talking, right? I've never seen anything like this. Let's build an altar. This is what we need to do. And God spoke. And what do you think God said when he had these three disciples' attention? Here's what God said. Mark 9, verse 7. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to what he wants to say to you. Now, you may say, well, how does he speak? How does Jesus speak? Well, he speaks in all sorts of different ways. He will speak to you through his word if you seek him. He will speak to you today through maybe my words. He may speak to you through something very specific just for you. He may speak speak to you through someone sitting next to you at church today. He may speak to you through someone that you work with. He may speak to you on the way home as you're listening to a song. He may speak to you through a daily devotion. 
He may speak to you through circumstances. The Holy Spirit who lives inside of you may use your conscience or intuition to speak to you. If you listen, you can train yourself to hear his voice. In John 10, 27, he said, My sheep, they listen to my voice. So we're brutally honest with the counselor. We, we listen to the counselor's voice. And number three, above all, we must do what the counselor tells us to do. You have to live the way that your counselor tells you. So the thing is, if you're going to follow Jesus, who came in, the, in, an, in an unexpected way and came in ways that the world considers foolish, if you live that way, the way that he prescribes, you, you have to expect that you will be considered by the world to be foolish as well. If you live how Jesus teaches us to live, turning the other cheek, blessing those who curse you, putting the needs of other people ahead of your own, uh, giving to those who ask of you, pouring yourself out to those in need. What's the world going to say? It's going to say, you're going to have a miserable life. Self-denial and sacrifice and all that stuff, it doesn't work, right? Because if there's no meaning to this life, then you grab all the pleasure that you can in all the ways that you can, right? Can I just say, don't, don't go the world's way. Jesus' way, it may look foolish, but, but listen, the feed trough in which he was born and the garbage heap on which he died are more famous than any of the Caesars or Pharaoh's mansions. People we can't even remember anymore. His foolish way is the way to greatness. You can count on it. He wants you to have a full life, a glorious life. He's for your joy. It says in Isaiah 9.3, You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They, rejo- they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. In the life of an agricultural people, there were two great moments of joy. At the harvest and when the enemy was defeated and they're splitting up the plunder. All right, the message of Christmas is, the world's a dark place and yet the coming of Jesus Christ shows us no one and nothing is hopeless. Because we have a wonderful counselor. If you believe it, the more you lean into that and trust in that and say, this isn't just a child, this is God. And this God is for me and he's for my hope. He is my hope. He's for my joy. And the more you think about what Christmas really is, the more it settles in your heart, the more joy you'll have. The joy of the harvest. The joy of when you split up the plunder. Christmas is a message of hope and joy in a world of darkness. Amen. Amen. Lord, let's pray. Lord, you have told us here that there is no more gloom or darkness for those who are in Christ Jesus who accept the message of Christmas. We pray, Father, for those of of us who know it and believe it, that the truth and the glory of it will dawn on us. It will dawn over us, Lord. So so the darkness that still clings to some of the areas of our lives will be uh, dispelled, Lord. Father, we, we know that there are some people here who need to come to you for maybe the very first time. They need to realize that they have been They've been fooling themselves about the darkness of life apart from you, the Good Shepherd. Father, we pray that the glory of Christmas will dawn on us. Our darkness will be dispelled. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.